Marissa, welcoming you back to our podcast. Today, I'm joined by Eric. Hey, Eric, how's it going? Hey, hey. how are you, Marissa? Hey, what you up to today? Uh, well, actually, uh, I am in the, the the rarest of rare places in uh, my life, uh, as you and everybody else at the Institute knows. I'm at the office. Ah. <laughs> yeah, I so hope it's that... Definitely a, an experience. <laughs> Right, right. Oh, yes, it's an experience. But the, the, the idea that I'm that I actually am in, in something that could be at least metaphorically understood as the center of things is uh, is, is uh, uh, as unsettling for me as it is for everybody else. Uh, uh, and I hope that uh, the fact that we don't have uh, seagulls uh, uh, barking at me or uh, trucks backup beeping at me like uh, we did last week in <laughs> Santa Barbara is... Uh, is uh, not an issue. Um, we're, we're hopefully uh, the, that we'll still have some entertainment value beyond the uh, background noise. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you might hear some sparrows on my end, but um, oh, that's okay. about it. That's, that's <laughs> I'm hoping for that's a pretty fine. peaceful um, sound, uh, yeah. <laughs> sound experience today. That's uh, right. Well, wonderful. Th- thank you so much for uh, joining me back here. I'm, I'm really excited mm-hmm. to have our second episode. It was great to talk to you last week and um mm-hmm. Yeah, we almost we almost got onto a topic last time. Almost, I, I'm, so, I'm so proud of us. I am too. We were really <laughs> on the precipice of, of and uh, yeah. you know, just as we almost did, we uh, we decided to end it. But thank you yes, again for uh, coming back. And um, you know, kind of similar to last week, I wanted to start off uh, by maybe addressing a conversation that we had just a couple days ago, mm-hmm. and. Um, we were kind of discussing what the topic of today's episode should be about and kind of figuring out how to address that. And I remember talking to you and kind of expressing this feeling of, of not knowing what that topic would be and, and how that feeling was kind of uncomfortable to sit with. And uh, you were talking about that too. Do you want to maybe refer back to that conversation? Um, maybe replay it a little bit? Sure. R- referring back to prior conversations is our specialty around here indeed uh, uh, uh who knows if uh, anything novel or creative is generated as a result of it but yes i i think that uh as in most conversations that we have in the world uh there there is uh, when we started our conversation today uh in, innocuously enough we said how's it going we didn't say what's happening. So that was good. We said, how's it going? So right there, if you kind of take a close look at that question, it's not about the what, it's about the how. And it's not about where we know we are headed, but about how the going is, you know. So in mm-hmm. other words, it's more about the momentum and and of feeling and catching the momentum in, in words that, sometimes have to do with events in our lives and sometimes don't, then it is about, you know, detailing all of the things, chronicling all the things that we, that we have done. Those are pretty boring conversations. And, uh, and certainly of, it would sound, you know, kind of ridiculous to have a conversation where you say, where, where you, you, you start to talk about all the things that are, uh, that you know are going to be happening. Uh, a casual conversation uh, instinctively uh, involves the the feeling of momentum. 
and uh, the, the the feeling that as we talked about in the last episode you know we're we are going somewhere but we don't really know where that where is and um i enjoy sitting in on conversations between people that are sort of i guess you could say made of that stuff and uh mm-hmm. and so i uh i think that there are of course points to make and and things to discuss on um, route business, as it were, uh, that we will uh, eventually get to. But I think that um, it, it is important to recognize the the, the, the value of letting of of letting conversation flow. I am not. Uh, necessarily a a devotee of that notion of flow i think the guy that 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 came up with that idea just passed away uh this week Uh, he was a professor over here at at claremont graduate university no way wow uh yeah mihaly chetsny mihaly he was a hungarian guy with almost impossible to pronounce last name i met him really nice guy uh but uh you know i could have some critiques about that because you can get conscious of the flow and then Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. that is kind of an anti-flow so uh here we are already engaged once again we've set sail on a conversation that is not talking about anything in particular but that doesn't mean you're talking about nothing at all oh that's exactly right there's still substance to this conversation and um the fact that we're able to dissect these things further and uh, kind of take something that would otherwise be really insignificant and uh, yeah, you, that not a lot of people I don't think would think this much about uh, perhaps right. and uh, really dissect that I think is is meaningful in its own way and it's important uh, to help us understand our own motives and, and why we why we feel uncomfortable in situations where maybe there is no script or there is no particular direction in a conversation where things are going. Right. Right. We do have things out there folks to talk about, but, uh, but uh, the getting to them is, uh, it can, can kind of be just as fun as long as you got asking, uh, are we there yet? Um, but, uh, but I, 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 I was going to just mention, you know, here in real time uh, that referring back to that conversation we had a couple of days ago, um off mic of course you know sort of the the this green room takes a larger and larger uh mm-hmm. role in our in our uh in our podcast but but i think even though you're the only one besides me that can bear witness to this uh since mm-hmm. it was just you and i having to talk uh i think that already what we're talking about like right now is it differs <laughs> from what we were talking about 2 days ago which was in, in a, a, it was similar but not identical to what we're talking about now it's different in tone uh both of them involve that sense of uh you know doing a close reading of what we do when we when we talk and uh not to get too bogged down on the um aims or the goals of a, a you know of a conversation um and uh but but yet even what we are talking about in this moment differs in a fairly substantial way from then 
it's just a matter like we talked about in the first episode of loosening up that fabric um, and not that the conversation has to be about something. And it can be, neither one of us are professional interviewers or interviewees. I think we covered that. We covered my situation a little bit in the last episode where it, it has it has been a titanic struggle internally and externally to uh, get to the moment where I stop saying to myself, I have nothing to say to these people. Um, you know, and that's been going on for me since my days in academia. I, uh, in, in, when I was in the PhD program, it was, uh, there, there were times where I would speak in front of, uh, you know, groups of people. And, uh, I can remember on a couple of occasions walking up to the, up to the, uh, to the, the seminar room or the lecture hall and saying, you know, what am I going to say to these people? It's not like I wouldn't have something to say. I could talk about, you know, the philosophers or the theologians or the critics or the thinkers, as you guys know, you know, mm-hmm. for uh, hundreds of years. Um, but but it's it's that idea of not wanting to be so presumptuous that I have, like, the the touchstone or, or whatever that I, that I have the keys to the kingdom you know um, I think that some of the conversation topics that we have discussed potentially having down the road uh, are worthy of uh, uh, a sort of normal way of going about discourse but you know none of the thoughts and none of the people associated with them should be reduced down to details or anecdotes you know uh, or biographies of them yeah yeah absolutely and i i love that uh experience that you described just now of of that feeling it almost reminds me of kind of a sense of like a vulnerability that exists when we are having a conversation or when we're presenting something to a group of people. And um, it's almost like there's this sense of trust between us um, in that you're trusting me to understand the process um, of speaking the words (laughs) that, you know, come out of my mouth to, to you understanding it um, or, you know, vice versa. And so there's this sense of, kind of walking on water when you're putting your words out there and, and hoping mm. that people take it in the manner in which you intend. Right. Uh, Just like in that statement, we hope that people don't uh, associate either one of us with Jesus. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I definitely right, right. understood exactly what you meant when you said that. And that yes. I knew that that was not what you meant. And yeah, r- right. I, I think that it, it's so uh, uh, critical for people to understand how um leaving the, as we talked about before, again, this, this fabric open or what we talked about in the prior uh, episode, the responsibility to otherness or to the face of the other uh, entails within it, a vulnerability that you spoke about. You, you can't not be vulnerable. You can't not be out there. You, there's no way you can hide behind your notes. There's no way you can hide behind your bullet points if you are having the kind of conversation that you were just talking about, the, mm-hmm. of a, you know, what we'll provisionally call a, an, you know, an authentic, you know, conversation that 
you know, that isn't people talking right by one another, that isn't people Mm -hmm. trying to exercise petty or grand scale, large scale uh, forms of power over another. Um, uh, And that can happen going to the post office. Uh, You know, if the if the person who's behind the desk is having a bad day, they have all kinds of ways of exerting their little forms of power um, over you Uh, and and the world we in which we live uh, that is so script based where when Mm -hmm. we walk into Carl's Jr. or the, you know, uh, German embassy, we are met with a protocol of language that uh, has already been decided for us in advance and and has made us for the rules rather than the rules being made for us when you are in that atmosphere but are but are at the same time someone who is cultivating this sense of vulnerability or availability you can you can perceive the gaps in between Mm -hmm. and you know when when those uh attempts at um exercising power or control over another by another come to the fore and it doesn't take much. It can just take a word or a glance or something like that. And the response to those situations, here we are being digressive again, but the response to those situations probably isn't, uh, you know, protest. It could be like you could launch a counter uh, attack of a smart ass comment yourself or something like that. But it's really more in just you can walk away uh, having salvaged yourself on on a certain level just by recognizing that that's what's taking place Mm. and i think this is the difference this what i'm getting at here in a way i think is the difference between what uh certain theorists and and uh critical critical theorists of the 20th century had in mind versus what their um their sort of uh, genealogical offspring did with it I'm referring to people like Derrida, who uh, who talk about these these issues, not necessarily on a conversational level, but he does talk about that in certain places uh, in the relationship between uh, interpretation and difference or difference. Um, You know, he is he I think that they are we are trying to stay in the spirit of those thinkers, Foucault and Roland Barthes and people like that who are trying to just make us uh, vigilant and aware that these things are taking place. They're not trying to get us to change or save the world. They're not trying to get us to uh, uh, be angry at the world as a result of the recognition of these little power forces that are at play. Um, Subsequent generations of academics, unfortunately, uh, and this is to me the sort of, despair for on personal despair coming from academia uh, of the current state of affairs in academia is that there are uh, uh, many people who stand to gain a lot from using or utilizing those theories as a way of uh, retribution Hmm. uh, or of uh, vengeance or, or of a kind of, um, of, use of those very power forces uh in a way that the uh that those theorists from the 20th century that i 
that I just discussed, uh, did not have in mind. I have to ask uh, if you're able to provide um, some examples of those. I'm so curious, in what form does that come in? Examples of those who have, in my opinion, misused that theory? Sure, sure. Or, yeah. Well, I, I don't want to step on any academic toes because oh, we are no in, problem. we are, we, you know, uh, I very much uh, and always will, I know, you know, respect mm -hmm. uh, the university and the college as an institution and am its staunchest defender uh, in the current state of affairs. If things were to get worse, if things were to get better, I would still defend it. Uh, so I don't want too much to be on record of having, um, you know, tried to do a takedown. Um, the, the, the state of affairs that we find ourselves in now are the result of forces beyond any one individual's control. Mm, um, yeah. that, um, that, that point more toward decisions that were made 40 or 50 years ago, uh, that in their, in, in their incipients already started to, uh, create problems, uh, and create, um, um, changes in the university. There's nothing wrong with change. Universities and colleges are defined by their capacity to change and, and take risks against their institutionality. But, um, but these, these changes, I think I can say with some confidence, were not necessarily for the, the larger esprit de corps of, uh, of university life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I, I think I'll go as far as that. Um, I, I think that, um, I, and I, and I definitely, and I want to make this point now, our, our conversations, uh, we have kind of agreed upon in advance are to the degree that we're able to prevent it, never attempting to drift into the political, mm -hmm. um, politics. It's, it's not that it's too much of a hot button issue for me. It's too, generally uninteresting there are just so many more important things to talk about in life um and you know i can make comments i guess meta comments on politics in general that i think that they are they're now reduced to team sports uh us versus them uh but here again those those problems germinated a long time ago and in that sense of it being like an us versus them or a, or a team sport, it really goes all the way back to the beginnings of what people like Friedrich Nietzsche and Karl Jaspers termed the axial age, uh, which is the age in which we are deeply invested in uh, separating black from white, up from down, right from wrong, success from failure, uh, darkness from light. Um, and are um, sort of, uh, we believe we're engaged in making uh, a pilgrimage from one to another. One, obviously, we know which terms get privileged there. Success, right, light, um, good, you know, um, and the terms that are subordinated are darkness, you know, uh, darkness over light. Uh, success over or light over darkness, success over failure, et cetera, et cetera. And that we're engaged in some sense in making a pilgrimage from darkness to light, from failure to success, from uh, bad to good. 
and um, according to those thinkers, and I am in concert with them, uh, the critical um, symptoms of our age uh, sort of can be pulled back to that uh, originary need to distinguish between those two. We've always distinguished between those. Plato ta- Plato's allegory of the cave is a perfect example of it, but um, it, it is a, a matter of debate uh, whether or not this, and I believe that this has so permeated our lives that we, uh, we are almost uh, incapable of realizing that we are still in an axial age. All you have to do is think in terms of uh, the what is arguably the basis for all um, virtual life, all internet life, all computational life, and that is a relationship between zero and one. Uh, there is your pri- there is a, another fundamental sort of axial relationship. One is never zero. Zero is never one. If one ever became like zero, we could not have computers. Uh, computers are predicated upon the uh, uncritically assumed and preordained difference between zero and one. But what we can never forget is that that is a symbolic difference. That that difference does not exist in the heavens. It does Mm -hmm. not exist in Mm -hmm. God. Mm -hmm. It does not exist on earth. It exists because we have agreed it to exist, just like as we talked about last week, we can agree that the sky is blue. When we talk about we talked about the correspondence theory of truth, our agreeing that the sky is blue does not make the sky blue in some transcendental way. It means that you, Marissa, and I have looked out there and we can both say blue. But I have no way of knowing uh, if unless I were able to get behind your eyeballs and look out through them, whether that for you is blue or magenta. Absolutely. And, and, and that's oh. how we agree upon something like that is just right. between us two. You know, I remember we right. were in the car one day too, uh, driving to work. And um, yes, we were yeah. looking at a tree and we were saying, you know, this tree is only a, a tree to us in this car. And uh, in all the other cars, we have no idea what other people think of that. And it doesn't necessarily make it a tree per se. It just makes it a tree to both of us. And it's only something that we can agree upon. So I think that's such a great point to make. And um, it can be applied to many more things than just a tree. Absolutely. Well, I mean, and the, and uh, a problem that we have on our hands in the 21st century is that uh, I would have to say for most people, there uh, there is little understanding of life outside of those what are called what Aristotle called accidentals, those uh, ways of describing things in the world um, that that again are, are terms of agreement that we have with one another. But as we talked about last time, and this is this is uh, to hang a little flesh on my comment that I know was a little could be a little bit obscure last week. I, I talked about how words have sort of become the reality, and this is what I mean by it: that there's no, um, there is no surplus meaning outside of us agreeing upon a tree. This is the major difference between mm-hmm. uh, what's called continental yeah. philosophy uh, by others uh, and what's called Anglo-analytical philosophy. 
uh, in the Anglo analytical tradition, uh, nothing is important unless we can define it, unless we can create a proposition or a syllogism, you know, uh, around it. And, um, and once we've done that, everything else that can be applicable to that, put it in quotes, tree that we saw in the car is, is not pertinent to philosophy. It's not pertinent to living. It's what's called art. And people from uh, uh, Auguste Comte to uh, Bertrand Russell to uh, um, Alfred North Whitehead, uh, some may not agree on that with Whitehead, but uh, in, especially in my Claremont community here, but uh, I'll be happy to defend that. Uh, and even people like Wittgenstein uh, would not have had their careers without uh, at some uh, to some greater or lesser extent had that correspondence theory of truth in play. And um, so as we talked about last week, also it's, it's a, in, in all of that work, in all of that living our lives through, through, uh, through the, the treeness being everything uh, we have for, we are engaged in what Heidegger called the forgetfulness of being with a capital B. And through its being, uh, a whole, an infinity of other possibilities opens up. That's where the surplus of meaning comes in. Mm -hmm. No, no, thank you. That is, that's very, uh, very great way to phrase it. Um, and so I guess I'm, I'm curious now, I'm, I'm kind of seeing this, uh, perhaps theme is the wrong word, but it's kind of an underlying idea that kind of continues to crop up in our conversations. And um, that is the idea of, of recognition, of, of recognizing these things that happen and not necessarily like you were saying, doing anything about them. And I appreciate that you said that um, because I think there does tend to be this expectation, at least um, in a lot of you know social circles that when you recognize that something is wrong or that uh, there's something that needs to be improved, do something about it. And, but just recognizing things is so much more powerful, I think, um, because it can change the way we think um, and our outlook on things. And sometimes that's perhaps the most important thing. Uh, so and let me just interject that for a okay. second. I think yeah. that that might, I think it's powerful because it might be the only thing we can do. <laughs> that's a great Here. point. That's yeah. a great yeah. point. It's yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Didn't no, no, no. Thank you. That's that's an excellent point. Um, so a, a long-winded way of saying, um, I'm I'm oh. curious if you would have any ideas on how we can expose ourselves to more of these ideas about recognition, or or how can we how can we foster that sense in ourselves a little bit more, as it's not something that we're often encouraged to do. Thank you. That's a great question. And here again, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we, we do not have these things prescripted, but th this question did emerge organically in this conversation. And uh, and it does segue kind of beautifully into <laughs> a, 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 a momentary uh, diversion toward uh, orders of business. And that is kind of what the Enroute Institute in some way is about. Uh, and um you 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 want to first of all let me uh, let me address the notion of a cultivation of uh, vulnerability or of recognition or something like that um, 
the 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 smart people among us, and I hope that everybody's smart that's listening in uh, will have have recognized that the word availability is itself an act of, in some sense, could be understood as an act of volition or as an act of uh, agency. And and if you have been paying attention, it, it's certainly the notion of agency or the notion of volitionality, uh, intentionality uh, comes under fire with us um, and and is um, what people like Derrida and Heidegger have said are the French word is surature, which means basically it means under erasure. Uh, going all the way back to Hegel, where Hegel talks about the term Aufheben, which means both to cancel out and to elevate at the same time. So um, intentionality, uh, uh, agency, etc., cetera, uh, it, it, those terms are erasure here. Um, I, 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 I like to use the word under fire because, yes, you can think about bullets, but you can also just think about the temperatures involved in fire. Uh, and how it transforms the properties of things. Uh, so uh, the way I'd like to put it is, is the more that we, that we are drawn to and absorbed into from the world, um, the problem of agency, the problem of human subjectivity, the problem of volitionality, the problem of um, intentionality, the more we are absorbed into it, the more I think we become uh, altered ourselves, like being under fire, like the fire changes the properties, right? That's very um, interesting, yeah. Yeah, so it's not a matter of saying, I am not about agency anymore. Mm-hmm. I am not a, a self, you know, I am I am not, you know, I, I am no longer going to... Uh, exercise my will it's that's you know everybody all all the way through the people that we regard here like especially Nietzsche Heidegger Derrida you know are 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 not going to agree that that's the approach to take so back to your question how does one go about you know changing oneself is what's kind of implied there and I, I I think that the way to 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 do that is to enfold the word recognition back onto itself to not use another word to supersede or to define it because that one is insufficient it is insufficient uh volition is insufficient agency is insufficient but it it does not by by the fact of its insufficiency it is not obliterated it is alfabend it is suature it is under erasure the word it in in heidegger's texts in many cases, the word being with a capital B that has a typographical uh, X through it. So you can still see the word being, but there is the conscious, the mm-hmm. recognized mm-hmm. notation that it ha- has been altered. Right. So so the very exposure to all of this is not the antidote. It's not the vaccine to protect us from future contagions of subjectivism or of uh, volitionality uh it is uh it it is part of it is living right you know it is an act of reading and so when we link up uh the the great texts 
and I don't have a problem with that word great folks. You can come at me if you want, but uh, I do mean it in a fairly specific way. Uh, and I don't mean it as a way like the people that I was just talking about at the post office of a petty power play over you because I'm the one that's devised these great texts. They, they, are, they are both uh, in some sense objectively and subjectively great. <laughs> Uh, but but that's part of what we do at the Onroot Institute is to uh, engage in close readings of these texts in order not to have necessarily to have debate with ourselves or with one another, but with ourselves and the text over their greatness, you know, and great texts are vulnerable. Here's that word again mm-hmm. to those discussions, to those uh, interrogations and inquiries. So. The, the business of the Enroute Institute is to place these works of what I call the works of quality, uh, whether they're works of high quality, higher quality, or profound quality as we divide them up in our, in our uh, little, in our list of, uh, uh, of, of books, which we can talk about also if you want. Um, but, but the subjection of the human subject to those texts is if there is, um, like I said, it's not an antidote or a vaccine, but it, but it is, it is in a way that will, that by virtue of our initial exposure to them will, and, and are continuing to, um, to participate in the process of absorption into those texts, I, you know, we are being absorbed into, into those texts, uh, will affect a, a transition. And you don't have to have been uh, deeply steeped in the tradition of these texts. Um, I think that if you, if you measure the, if possible, the degree of transformation, things like this, are the, the most important degrees of transformation occur in the beginning of the, the, in the, the initial um, uh, encounter, I guess. That's maybe not the word I'm looking for, but the initial uh, experience of the text. Um, what you do with it after that is up to you, but you're already changed. You're all already altered. And the and as I've said many times before, if I'm pressed to come up with a definition of a great text, it's one such that by the time you are so-called done with it at the end on the last page, it requires you to begin a rereading. Uh, not even so much because it's super interesting, but because it it has had such a profound impact effect upon you affect upon you that you yourself are not your the same yourself that you were when you began wow so it, it's it a different like it's a different person reading the text right and right. engaged in the middle of the text there's always already this alterity with an a your be, uh, this process of so-called being altered uh, is in play and uh, and so then if you if you sort of, in a way, link that up with a lived experience like our conversation we're having right now, uh, 
you know, one thing feeds on another. And that sense of availability and that sense of vulnerability and that sense of accessibility and that sense of responsibility, like we talked about in the first episode, mm-hmm. um, I think uh, un- uh, kind of unavoidably deepens. It's this wonderful openness that I think we acquire when we begin to expose ourselves to these texts. And that's just such a wonderful way of putting it. I'm very curious about, um, you know, I, it's possible we've talked about this before and, and perhaps even on our last podcast, I can't quite recall, but uh, I know well, we've repetition, talked- repetition of the same is not the same as repetition of the identical. It's, this never is the, true. It's, it's, it's never the same thing. It's never the identical thing. Go ahead. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so uh, in possibly a new vein now, I'm, I'm curious about this sense of tentativeness that I think a lot of us have, including myself, about approaching these texts and about even approaching the idea of uh, having um, an openness to this recognition and a willingness to uh, be vulnerable in that manner. And so I'm curious if there's any particular pieces of advice you have for those who are kind of struggling with this sense of fear in in approaching these texts and in jumping into uh, these vulnerabilities. Well, yeah, uh, yes and no, I guess. Uh, On one hand, I, I don't want... And, and none of the none of what we are involved in at the Honored Institute has anything to do with trying to tell people what texts mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and our, our job is to be is to is to introduce, uh, but not and maybe to seduce. But I think the text really does the seduction. Uh, so maybe the better way to put it would be introduce in order to seduce, to let the text seduce. Um, and, you know, our, our success or failure as, as an institute has so much to do with our curatorial powers or potential lack thereof, uh, you know, in presenting the, these texts to, you know, to an audience that's, in a way, always already available. And that's where I was going to say the yes part is, you know, I, we can maybe go, go out on a limb here and say that just about anybody who's listening to this, who's gotten all the way to the nearly the end of the second episode uh, is, is possessed by that, um, I guess you could say desire for openness, desire for availability. I I just shouldn't use the word openness there. I think that's a, that's perhaps a a misuse of the term because the, the word open is charged uh, and that will be definitely a subject for discussion later on, but uh, of availability and vulnerability, like we've talked about already uh, that's already sort of uh, at play. Uh, in, 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 in the, in those who might have an ear to hear, you know, what's being said, the, um, the more, uh, I guess, um, street level, uh, response that I have to this is, uh, I got my, um, an undergraduate uh, degree at a major university 
but I really got um, my uh, <laughs> the substance of my of my of my learning came by way of my immersion in the campus bookstore. Really? Uh, yeah. And, uh, and um, how that happened is, is unfortunately uh, not um, possible for current generation the, the current generation of students i'm, mm-hmm. I'm sorry to say to you marissa <laughs> but uh <laughs> yeah but, that's me <laughs> but, yeah that's you uh but uh but it, it's and it has to do with the fact that bookstores when i was an undergrad and a graduate student of course had the not just the capability not just yeah not just the capability but in, in some sense the mission to present a wide range of texts in many different disciplines uh, at your fingertips. Now, you might say to yourself, well, that's what the library does. Actually, that's not what the library does. Uh, at, a, at the university level, the, uh, there's as much of a mission of, the, of, a, of a university library to be a depository of knowledge as it is to make it... Um, fingertip accessible to you or or to be able to perceive in some sense in some truncated but significant sense the uh the wisdom of the world in a glance in a room you know and that's what could happen you know places like even when they were good places to go uh which i don't know that they are now uh, your typical retail bookstore, and I won't name names, uh, is so deeply invested in in merchandising and the mercantile mm-hmm. impulse and right. corporate boardrooms and things yeah. like that, that you don't get that feeling and that experience. You know, uh, the, the listeners out there can agree with me or not. That go into the bookstore and judge for yourselves. But uh, there is not that sense that you you could have even as recently as maybe 10 years ago of walking in the doors and at a glance, just kind of feeling the, the, uh, the, the uh, spectral uh, power of uh, meaningful things thought, written, and said, you know, uh, it's not all there. It's not the Library of Alexandria or, or certainly not Borges's uh, Library of of Babel, you know, but it's, it's enough. It was enough, you know? Um, and, uh, so I could go in as an undergrad and just drift over to whatever category I wanted to. And unlike a library where like at a university library, you know, the, the, the BXs are 24 cases long. Wow. Um, it's it's like oh going to uh, the uh, Oxford English Dictionary to look for a word. By the time you find that word, you're going to forget what the word was you were looking for. <laughs> right. And, and the, you know, they're great places. They're magical places in their own way, like mm-hmm. major libraries. And I recommend anybody that's, you know, in in Claremont to come to the Honnold library <laughs> in, in any of the UCs to go to their major libraries. It's, they're, they're magnificent places. Uh, 
but they are overwhelming. And, and while I, I guess that experience could be possible, it would take an undergraduate career of about 65 years to replicate what I could do in four years uh, at an undergraduate level. And that, I think, that experience was what honed my availability skills more than anything. You also had the benefit, and I, I'm not maligning anybody that works in the bookstore business now uh, at all, you know, but you had the benefit of people who were uh, involved in an entire lifetime of bibliography that were often the directors of the college bookstores up to, say, I don't know, 2010 or something like that. And uh, so you also had that faith when you walked in that anything you opened or anything you looked at would be on some level good, not marketable, not saleable, not profitable, but good. Fitting within the spirit of the college or university in which you stood, you know, and uh, I can go into this a lot more. I know we're running late on time here. No, but, no, but, you're, um, you're fine. Uh, yeah. that, that is a perfect way, uh, you know, so <laughs> here's our plug at the at the end, you know, because um, and this is not intended at all. It just happened to drift this way, you know, but but because those experiences do not abound anymore, I can uh, I can give you the names of perhaps 15 bookstores in the United States that might come close to replicating that experience still uh, because there that isn't around anymore. Um check out our fundraisers they are mighty even if they're tiny uh, because they are deeply curated and they are uh developed i guess or they they emerge within the spirit of this kind of no matter what book you pick up you know there will be something something interesting in there you know, but they just, but really there just aren't that many, uh, that many experiences like that. God bless them. You know, independent bookstores that are trying to emerge now are doing their best, but they are slaves of the publishing industry and the publishing industry itself no longer has, uh, in its sight, you know, um, what's called back backlist titles, you know, uh, there's, there's the, there's a book by Italo Calvino out there, but none of the 12 books that he wrote or 24 books that he wrote prior to. So that when you pick up one yeah. book by Italo Calvino, boom, there's the rest of it, you know, because they are under the yoke of profitability. That's and, right. Um, and yeah. If, if I can say as a student, yeah. I completely agree with everything you've said. It, it totally resonates with my experience, you know, having visited a lot of bookstores myself and uh, just seeing how how different things are from how you described they once were. And um, I think the, the word curation is so important here. And that really is at the, you know, the crux of the problem, I, I think, is that there is a, a lack thereof. And uh, ever since that has come to a halt, we really haven't had the uh, ability to have such a rich experience of all of these texts, um, because it really is kind of, I think, in many ways, a cookie cutter version of what it once was, um, kind of just, I don't want to say, uh, I want to use the wrong 
Yeah, we don't want to we don't want to offend any of our uh, potential constituents here. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, I just mean it. It does. Uh, it's it does, disappointing by for sure. Yeah, yeah. It, it does kind of present an experience that's different from from what it was before. One that probably was a lot more immersive from what I hear. Right, right. That's that's the key. You know, uh, on a small scale, we we as I've said before, you know, you bring your curiosity and we'll bring the curation. And there uh, you go. And yeah. And I, and I think that's, uh, that's the best kind of, uh, you know, uh, symbiotic relationship that, that you can have. And maybe, yeah, one of the better ways to describe and to respond to your earlier, you know, earlier question. So, yes. Uh, I love yeah. the, uh, the detour we took here today. I yes. wasn't expecting it, always. but I, I loved it. And, um, it, it always gives me so much insight into, um, my own little <laughs> issues with, with the things we talk about. So thank you so sure. much for joining me again today and, and for, for talking about this. Thank you. Thank you. And I hope to talk to you again next week. I do want to put in one last plug uh yes anybody do. that's listening out there has any kinds of questions they want to ask uh any kinds of comments they want to make uh please please send something our way and uh we'll we'll do our best to field it please do thank you so much eric again i hope you have a wonderful week and we'll be talking to you next week thank you and thank you to our listeners thank you to our listeners bye-bye Hey y'all, this is Marissa. I just wanted to say if you had any questions or any comments, you can get in touch with us at enrouteinstitute at gmail.com. That's E-N-R-O-U-T-E-I-N-S-T-I-T-U-T-E at gmail.com. Thanks so much for your support.